Greetings, shalom, welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Sean. Website can be found at scriptureandprophecy.com. That's where you go to find the archives, and that's where you go to support this mission of truth. This morning, we are resuming our study in the gospel according to Matthew, and we're ready for chapter 18. Much is discussed in this chapter. Uh, We have instructions about humility. We have kind of the curse or the woe to those who would cause God's children to stumble. We have the parable of the lost sheep. We have what to do when your brother in Christ offends you. What's the proper way to handle that? What authority does the church have in that situation? And instructions on forgiveness. So ultimately, it's really about humility. There's a lot here, and uh, I hope that you'll receive it all. So open your hearts, and let's see what the Word of God has to say for us this morning. Let's begin. Chapter 18, Gospel of Matthew. Verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy milestone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Please note, ultimately he's talking about humility. You know, unless you become like a child, childlike faith and be converted right meaning when you put your trust in Jesus you become a new creation all things pass away behold all things become new listen to the severity here to someone who would lead a child cause a child who is trying to seek Jesus to stumble to fall into sin there's grave consequences I know there are many in the world who think actions don't matter You just come to Jesus and it's all just whatever from then on out. Nothing you do, there's no accountability, there's no action, there's no consequences to the decisions you make. There absolutely is. Listen to the severity. Jesus is saying if you cause a child to stumble, it would be better off if you were drowned in the ocean. A millstone hung around your neck. But... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, in other words, fall into sin, 
It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Verse 7 Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Now he's saying woe to the world. Why? Because of the thing, the stumbling blocks that it puts out there that causes God's children to stumble, to sin, to error. He says it's inevitable. It's going to happen, right? Like stumbling blocks are going to come. Temptations are going to come. Persecutions are going to come. Struggles are going to come. But woe to them from who they come. John MacArthur, he puts it like this. It is expected that those in the world would cause Christians to be offended, stumble, and sin, and they will be judged for it. But it should not be that fellow believers lead others into sin, directly or indirectly. One would be better off dead. He's making the point that it's even more grievous when a fellow brother or sister in Christ causes another believer to stumble or to sin. The scriptures say, if something seems like sin to me, whether it is or isn't, if it seems to be sinful and I do it, then it is sin. Paul warns, like, do not do this. Do not put stumbling blocks in front of people. If you have a friend who believes that consuming alcohol in any, way, in any way, shape, or form is sinful behavior, and you have them over to your house, do not drink in front of them and offer them a drink or harass them about the fact that they think that that's sin just because you are free from that. You're free from that bondage. Don't do that to that person. That's a stumbling block. You're causing them sin in their minds and God takes that very seriously Paul addresses that about clean and unclean food you can go to Romans chapter 14 verses 11 through 14 listen to what he says for it is written as I live saith the Lord every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Verse 14, I know and I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in itself. Before I finish that sentence, listen to what Paul just says. I know and I am persuaded by the Lord Jesus. That there is nothing unclean of itself. So Paul's saying, in my mind, there is nothing really unclean anymore. But that's not the end of his statement. He says, he goes on to say this, But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. 
Do you see what's being said there? People are more interested in protecting their point of view, their beliefs, than they are about the eternal soul of the people around them. You had better be careful with that. You don't think it's sin? Fine. But if your brother or sister in Christ does think it's sin, do not cause them to stumble because for them it will be. Do you understand what the scriptures are teaching here? It's about the heart. And Jesus clearly takes all of this very serious. So let's get back to it. He starts with, woe to the world. So let's go back to verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. I know we're kind of taking a long time with this one verse. Let me just read you a quick commentary from Matthew Henry, and then we'll move forward. He says, Considering the cunning and malice of Satan and the weakness and depravity of men's hearts, it is not possible but that there should be offenses. So Matthew's, Matthew Henry is saying, you know, just like what Jesus says, it's because of, because of the depravity of man and because of how evil Satan is, it's, you know, obviously there's going to be stumbling blocks. He goes on to say, God permits them for wise and holy ends, that those who are sincere and those who are not may be made known. Being told before that there will be seducers, tempters, persecutors, and bad examples, let us stand our guard. We must, as far as lawfully we can, that we may, part with what we cannot keep without being entangled by it in sin. What's he getting at? He's saying anything that would cause us to sin or stumble, we got to do our best to not be entangled by those things and stay away from those things. He's, he's making a point of what Jesus says, says next. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet to be cast in the turn of fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into fiery hell. Do your actions matter and have consequences? Why is Jesus taking this so seriously about sin? I don't care whatever your doctrines are. What do you what do you see here when you take this for exactly as what it says? Jesus is saying if there's something that's causing you to sin, causing you to stumble, you better part with whatever that is. If it's a TV show, if it's a social media thing, whatever it is that leads you down the road to destruction and causes you into sinful behavior, cut it off. Get rid of it. Get to the root of the problem and get it away from yourself because you're better off going into the kingdom of heaven, maimed, 
than to have your whole body but go into hell. And that translation, fiery hell, that's a good translation. That's exactly what it's speaking to. The word there in Greek is Gahina. In fact, there may be some translations out there that actually say Gahina. Maybe the Geneva? I'd have to go look it up. What's Gahina mean? It's a place, according to the Greek word, where both soul and body can be destroyed. An an unquenchable fire. Pretty serious. Pretty serious. Now, verse 10. Check this out. So Jesus makes all this. So he says, Woe to the world to bring stumbling blocks, but it's inevitable it's going to happen. If if there's something that's causing you to sin, get it away from yourself. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now we're talking about children. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save which was lost. Their angels, possessive. T-H-E-I-R. Interesting. Their angels... Don't offend one of the, don't despise one of these little ones. Their angel, possessive, the angel that belongs to them, is in heaven continually seeing the face of the Father. What in the world, right? Here's what Charles Spurgeon says about it. He says, There is an angel to watch over each child of God. The heirs of heaven have those holy spirits to keep watch and ward over them. These sacred intelligences who watch over the people of God do at the same time behold God's face. They do His commandments, hearkening unto the voice of the word and beholding His face at all the while. And if these little ones are thus honorably attended by their angels, never despise them. They may be dressed and and fustin. They may wear the very poorest of print, but they are attended like princes, therefore treat them as such. Is there anything more precious than a child who has faith in Christ? According to the scriptures, there is an angel that watches over you. This is why I believe they were called watchers. And in the book of Daniel, what are they called? He calls it, go look it up. He refers to them as a watcher. There's something going on there. We can't fully understand it because the scriptures don't tell us enough about it. But I think this commentary from Spurgeon really sets it up. He's like, regardless of how a child of God is dressed and how poor they are or whatever, they're attended to by the heavenly host as if they are princes. Why? Because they belong to the king. Now, how important are those who belong to the king? Let's move on. Verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go and search for the one that is straying? 
If he turns out and he finds it truly, I say unto you, he rejoices over it more than the, over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He's talking about spiritual perishing. Jesus is saying there's not one sheep of mine that's less valuable than another to me and I will go to the ends of the earth to find that one who's straight off because they belong to me God has given me the hundred and I'm going to have all one hundred let me go back to Spurgeon's commentary he says Christ has come on purpose that he may send them out and find them out he will and having a hundred whom his father gave him, he will not be satisfied with the ninety-nine, but the whole hundred shall be there. That's how important. Verse 15. We're changing directions here now. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. In private, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here's the process. Your brother sins. You go to him privately and say, hey, that thing, you know, that was hurtful um, or, you know, whatever it is. And you talk to him privately about it and you point it out to him and he blows you off. You come back with two or two more. Just a couple more people from within the congregation, within the assembly. And he won't listen to them either. Then at that point, it's made known to the whole assembly. If he refuses to listen to that, then they are to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector, which means one who is outside of the congregation. You may not like that, but that's what the scriptures say. Verse 18, Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be have loosed in heaven. Again, it's going back to the authority of that process. Verse 19. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three gather together in my name, I am there in their midst. What you will be able to accomplish for the kingdom of God will always be greater when you come together with other believers than what you can do on your own. Because, why is that? Because that's just the way God has set it up. He has not set up this faith to be walked alone, but by, but with others alongside others. Our God is a communal God. 
But most of us, including myself, we have gotten really comfortable being going at it alone. But that's not the process. That's why Paul says, do not stop coming together, gathering together, as is custom of some, especially as you see the day approaching. That's all the book of Hebrews. I say, Paul, we don't actually know who it was written by. All right, let's move forward. Instructions about forgiveness from verse 21 through 34. Here is the process. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Why is Peter bringing this up? Because Jesus just went on about what the process is if your brother sins against you. Here's the process, you know, go to them privately, grab a couple of people, then tell it to the church, and so forth. Peter says, well, how often am I supposed to forgive? And then Peter offers up a brilliant suggestion. Up to seven times, question mark. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 77 times. Now, Peter thought he was going above and beyond already because the Jewish tradition was three times. Or I should say the Hebrew-Israelite tradition was three times. And that was based off of... uh, you know, God f- would forgive Israel's enemies only three times, according to like uh, the prophet Amos, stuff like that. And so they thought that that was kind of the standard. Peter's like, I'm going to take this. I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to take this a step further. How about seven times? Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? Okay. What's he getting? Is that, is it literal? Are you supposed to do the math there and let's and start checking it off every time? The point is, It's just like God is willing to forgive you every morning when you come to the throne of grace. That is your attitude also towards your fellow believers. We're talking about our brothers in Christ. Brothers and sisters in the faith. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he began to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell on the ground and prostrated himself before, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave his debt. So please note, Jesus is saying, here's a story about how this process looks and what the kingdom of heaven is like. We owe this unpayable debt to God. It's enormous. It's beyond our ability to repay, to repair. And in this scenario, the king or the Lord is is like, you know, you can't repay it. You're, you and your whole family and all your possessions are to be sold. The man grovels at his feet and says, please have mercy on me. And he says, you know what? I will have mercy on you. And he forgives the debt. That's what God does to us, right? Forgives us of grave and numerous uncalculable debt. But here's the warning. If you've been forgiven, here's the grave warning. 
Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave all the debt. Verse 28, but, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. You know, so he owed him like some pennies. Nothing serious. And he seized him and he began to choke him saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell on the ground and began to plead with him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. Okay, so it's the same scenario. The slave fell before the Lord. Forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. The king says, fine, I forgive you, your debt's paid. Then that same slave goes out and finds his brother, which represents your fellow brother in Christ, says, repay me. He can't, even though he owes way less debt than what you owed. And he falls on his knees, please forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Verse 31, so when his fellow slave saw what, wait, verse 29, but he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay him back what he owed. So he was unwilling to forgive his brother in the faith a small debt, even though the Lord forgave him an unpayable debt. Verse 31, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him to the torturers until he shall repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Is there action and consequence there? Do the scriptures not say, does Jesus not say, if you will not forgive your brother, I will not forgive you? And in this story, he says, this is the same way. That wicked slave who refused to forgive his brother, even though he was forgiven, was sent to the torturers. So it will be with you if you do not forgive your brother. Seems severe because it is. There's consequence, there's action and consequences to action. And they have grave stakes, whether you want to believe it or not. I pray that this has spoke to you this morning in pierced hearts. Maybe it's causing you to fall on your knees in repentance. Maybe it's causing you to draw closer to God. That is my prayer and my hope for all of you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your prayers and your support. Peace and grace be with all of you. And until next time, God bless.